Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. I'll be reading 1 John, I mean, excuse me, chapter 2. Boy, that would have been moving backwards after a while. Verses 22 to 23. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible Word through the Apostle John. Father, help me. Help me say accurately what this text says. Help me apply it to our lives. Help us receive it with our hearts. Embrace Jesus all the more. Help us love people better without ever diminishing our love for the truth to the glory of Your holy name. Amen. Look again at verse 22 and notice the first four words. Who is the liar? That is strong language. John doesn't hesitate to refer to these quote-unquote professing Christian teachers who left the fellowship finally over doctrine. He doesn't hesitate to call them liars. Now what's stunning is, you know who John is. We, we refer to the Apostle John as something. He, he, he's the Apostle of love. The word agape, love that flows through his gospel and through his epistles. That's why we call him this. He has a strong emphasis on love. And in this short letter, he's already commanded the church, love one another. And he will go on doing it. Let us love one another, beloved. For love is from God, and he who loves knows God. But he who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's a huge gospel reality to John. And yet, after commanding love one another, he says, oh, by the way, Steve and Scott and John, they know these people personally. They're liars. They're wrong. They're dangerous. 
They're deadly. I don't think that language was much of a shock to his hearers. But I do think that this language of John's comes as a real shock to a lot of churchgoers in our day. And so the question that lay before us with this text is, how are we to reconcile these two things? In the same letter, love, love, love one another. And, by the way, this former church members who left because of doctrine, they are liars. See, in our time where the word, which has totally changed its meaning from before, but where the word tolerance is in, this kind of talk by John sounds like a contradiction to many, though it's not. We live in a a bizarre time when strong language, when Truth statements are deemed in and of themselves to be opposed to Christian love. I think if we could hide the Apostle John from churchgoers today, not know that this is John and what he says, and just put it in the guise of some other man, he would be judged by many evangelical churchgoers as unloving and intolerant. We live in a day where truth minimizing relativism and pluralism, there's no right or wrong religion. They're all equal. Even within religions, all theologies, they're all just as valid as the other. Cultures, there's no better culture than other cultures in the world. Who says you're better because... That you allow your young girls to be educated where they have a different culture so they don't let them learn math and reading and writing and don't let them show their face in public. We live in a day and age where people are afraid to say, this is right and that is wrong. This is better in this culture or theology needs to be. Changed. And because we live in this kind of a time, the accusations fly if you come to opinions on what truth is. You are a religious bigot. You are intolerant. You are unloving. You are arrogant. That is inevitable in our day. If you say to someone about their view of God, your view of God is wrong. You got it wrong. And it's dangerous. Then you will be called arrogant. A few years ago, the Southern Baptists in their national convention drew up their purpose to evangelize Jewish people in our country. To show them that Jesus is the Messiah that saves. And they were lambasted in the mainstream media over that. Called arrogant and condescending. 
if strained church members who are engulfed in sinful lifestyles and drunkenness and lack of participation in the body, if they're called lovingly to come back to Jesus, to repent, you very well may be accused of being judgmental. If you say in our day and age that heterosexual sexual activity is sinful and it is a slap in God's face, you're called unloving, prude, backward, get with the times, don't judge me. If you are biblically clear that same-sex Sexual activity, no matter what you call it, is sinful and wrong, then you're called a homophobe. Oh, I can go on and on. There's, there's a culture now in which we live. But as we come to the Bible, and we come to John, and first John, here's what rings true. Both love for others. And truth are biblical values. And that causes somewhat of a tension. A, not a tension, a tension. How do we live loving others and not caving on truth? John says, love your brothers. And he says, those that we used to eat with and hang out with and teach with and worship with are liars. Here's just a basic foundational truth. Is that if you hold to truth, if truth is important, it will bring controversy. By definition in our day. John's already made that clear, right? One of the signs that the end times have come, meaning from Jesus until His second coming, is there will always be false teachers and false doctrines floating around in the church. And therefore, if you hold to truth, controversy will come. Because controversy is important. It is essential when precious truth is being rejected or is being distorted. But having said that, there is a difference between Contending for truth and being a contentious person. This is the tightrope we have to always figure out how to walk. Some people love a message about truth because they love the feeling of controversy and getting in people's faces because they're contentious. By nature. That's not what we're talking about. What we need to constantly figure out as believers is how do we pursue being humble lovers of real persons in front of us while contending for the truth. See, there, there's a lie in, in this relativistic culture that we find ourselves in that, that it it goes something like this. Convictions about what you think is true and is real truth, not just your truth. Conviction nowadays for many people in our culture, that equals 
arrogance. And humility, humility means something now that it never used to mean. Humility means you're just uncertain about everything. So you're humble. A hundred years ago, yeah, I said that, a hundred years ago, this is not new, but it is much more rampant. A hundred years ago, G.K. Chesterton nailed it when he wrote, quote, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The divine reason. He concludes this way. We are on the road. Oh, and I think we've come to the end of the road. But we're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Chesterton is absolutely correct. And thus we can see how John is humble, is loving, and thus calls them liars. Lies, important lies, like this lie that he's dealing with, kills, brings eternal Death, and therefore, love warns people about it. And John's not the only one that presents us with this tension of the biblical value of love, which is so central. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, Jesus said. It's all over the Bible. Love and truth confrontation. Paul, for instance, in Galatians 1, verse 9, writes to the churches, We have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. What an unloving, intolerant, arrogant person. At the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, he closes it out this way. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. In Luke 3, 7, John the Baptist, you know that arrogant cuss, 
says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Well, in Matthew 23, there was another man who said this. And he didn't do it behind their back, he did it to their face. Woe, meaning very bad judgment coming to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. I'm going to be really cautious not to call Jesus arrogant and unloving. So let's not confuse categories about what Christian love is. Christian love does not mean let's water down standards. Let's water down theology. Let's water down the clarity of the gospel. Love is just sentimentality. People feel good when they're around me. And, I want, and they like me because of it. It's not the definition of Christian love. Somehow, Christian love from Jesus, from Paul, from John the Baptist, and from John the Apostle can call people liars. And it can call them hypocrites. And it can warn them to flee from the wrath to come. It can say, stop believing what you're believing. And it can say, stop doing what you're doing. And so that's the question. How do we do this? Because we can go off and say, yeah, I love truth, and just run people over in an unloving way. So how do we walk the tightrope? Let me at least start with a basic, basic principle. There is a distinction in the New Testament between what we are to put up with and endure concerning personal attacks upon us. When our feelings are hurt in relationships with people, that's one thing. And we are to endure. And to be very slow to speak. Okay, then there's the other. That is our response when the truth is attacked. Jesus did say, turn the other cheek. Did that hurt? Give him the other one. Hold your tongue when it comes to your feelings being hurt. When it comes to someone attacking you personally. Don't retaliate and say, liar! Scumbag. He says, don't do that. But then, when truth and the truth of the gospel is concerned, when the essence of core doctrines of Christianity are concerned, like the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation, that you're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, apart from works, like the definition of marriage, and especially when it comes to the doctrine of the person of Christ, which is the issue at stake when John calls them liars. When those issues of truth we are come about, we are to stand and be strong and not hesitate to lose biblical language. Like, 
They're liars. What they're saying is no gospel at all. Sounds really close. And they're twisting it. It is dangerous and ultimately will lead to eternal damnation. Okay, that's the intro. Let's go to the text. Evidently here for John, he regards this particular matter concerning who Jesus really is. This doctrine of Christology. He seems to find it of vital importance to the essence of true Christianity and of eternal salvation. So, so now, just, just ask him, why does John use such strong language calling them liars? To, to, to whom? To other baptized, professing believers who finally left the church that they were teaching. They weren't saying, we don't believe in Jesus. Well, we believe in Jesus, but they're teaching. Let's be clear. The Christ Spirit came upon the man, Jesus, at His baptism and empowered Him throughout His ministry. And that Christ Spirit left before He was killed on the cross. Okay. In other words, the Christ Spirit can never be identical to the Jesus from Nazareth. They're not one and the same. The Christ did not become flesh, but came upon a man of flesh. Why does John use such strong language against such people? Calling them liars and calling them the Antichrist. Hmm. The first answer, it's right there in verse 22. He calls them liars because... They are telling a lie. It's that simple. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is identical to the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And see, right before that, he already said, look at verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth. And because no lie is of the truth. And so, what these men are teaching, here's John's point, it doesn't correspond to the facts. It's a lie. Okay, remember, who's writing? John, the son of Zebedee. He lived with Jesus for a few years, traveling in this itinerant ministry. He ate with Him, prayed with Him, talked with Him, listened to Him, saw Jesus who is truly human in every way. And this is the John who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was stunned when God pulled back the veil. Not about a Christ who was upon a human Jesus, but the veil of who this one person was. Even though he has a true human nature and a true divine nature, he was there and he heard a supernatural voice say, This, that 
Man is my beloved son. And so, John knows these teachers that have cropped up within the church are contradicting the very voice of God he heard. That's why the very first sentence of this whole letter, he began it this way. That which was from the beginning, what we, including himself, the other apostles, what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and we have touched with our hands. He's referring to Jesus. Physical. Concerning the Word of life. The Word of life was manifest in true humanity. That's where he's coming from. John watched the Jesus he loved, this genuine human being, be tortured to death. He was there. And a week later, he was in the room when that same flesh, though now glorified in the resurrection, said to his buddy Thomas, look at the holes in my hands. Reach your hand and touch this hole in my side, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. John was there, and so John is saying, I am an eye witness. I am an ear witness. I am a tactile touch witness of this Christ who is identical to Jesus. Therefore, they are lying about who He really is. So that's the first reason He uses such strong language. It is a lie. Now the second reason John speaks so strongly is because of the consequences of this lie. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, so first, that teaching that John is calling them liars, that they're teaching, is because it denies the real person of Jesus Christ. It denies that the eternal God, or as John says, the life, who is eternal without beginning, became human. They are denying what we call the incarnation, the enfleshed, truly human nature of Jesus. And if those false teachers are right in their teaching, then, then even what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 6-11 is not true. For though He was in the form or very nature of God, He did not 
regard his equality with God a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself by becoming a servant, becoming human in order to suffer and die and be glorified. That's just not true. It means, in other words, ultimately what they're denying also then is the atonement. When they deny that the Christ Spirit, Divine Spirit, when they deny that that is distinct from the human Jesus, they deny the whole ball of wax. They deny what the Old Testament had been prophesying about this Mashiach, Messiah, in Greek, Christos. That's what we call Christ. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ who is to come and to be truly human, a descendant of David, and live in perfect humanity, in perfect obedience, and then be slaughtered as a substitutionary lamb where the sins of all who will be saved were punished in that man, Jesus. And then He was physically, bodily, flesh and bone, raised from the dead. They are denying that. If God did not become man, then there was no atonement for sins. And there is no salvation. And there is no eternal life. There is only judgment. If we get that, should we be at all surprised that John called these people liars? Thank you. But John doesn't stop there. He's clear. He goes on to say, the consequence of their doctrine is that there is no true relationship with God on friendly, fatherly grounds except through Jesus who is the Christ. Except through the Incarnation and the substitutionary atonement. The man, the human being, John is saying, who is identical with Christ, not a Christ spirit that came upon him, but that man who said, and John recorded it for us, I, the one person, two distinct natures, said in his human nature, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There are many people that live with this vague idea of a God and of a Creator, a higher power, or even that He is the God of Moses and say prayers and do religious deeds and functions and ceremonies. But the New Testament is clear. 
There is no such thing as God as your Father except through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no removing of God's wrath from you in order that now forever He's your loving Father except through the atonement of His Son. You can believe in the Creator. You can believe in some unseen influence, but you will never know Him on good terms except through His Son. No one who denies the Son. And it's not just say, oh, no, I believe in Jesus. Which Jesus? They weren't denying they believed in Jesus. But they twisted what it meant. So he means, no one who denies the Son and says false things about who Christ really is has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Denying the Son in His incarnation and in His substitutionary atonement is a profound deception that leads to an eternity of just misery. So He calls them liars. See, this is doctrine. But don't be one of those people of our age who say it's about relationship, brother. Is if you can separate relationship with God from doctrine. Oh, doctrine is an issue, but that issue of doctrine is all about a relationship with God, the Father. John makes that clear. This doctrine is about an intimate experience with God the Father. Remember how Paul put it in Galatians, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Daddy, Abba, Father, and so John uses strong language. Liars! Because if you believe these so-called Christian teachers, then you lose everything. Because John knows the Father has planned this wonderful salvation. The eternal Son came and became one of us in order to accomplish that salvation in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. And He has sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who are being saved. That's what He said we saw last week. He says, you have the anointing. That's why you hear and know and embrace this truth and have rejected the false doctrine. And the, the positive consequence, if that's you, it's right there in verse 25. Look at it. He says, and this... For, for embracing the truth of the Gospel. This is the promise that He made to us. Eternal 
life. And so John goes on to exhort the believers in verse 28. And that's us, too. And now, little children, abide or remain in Him so that when He, Jesus, appears at the second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. He's saying to them, don't believe the lie. Don't get your doctrine of Christ wrong. Because if you do, then you will find yourself one day face to face with the facts on that second coming day. And you will turn away. In shame. Another writing of John from the Isle of Patmos, the revelation of Jesus. It's stunning what was given to him when he pens for us in Revelation 6.16. And everyone, it's future, it's coming. This is a future and it is coming. Everyone hid themselves in caves calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus. That's not fantasy for movies and books. It's a fact that is coming. The God-man's going to come. Jesus will come again. And if you want to be a person who rejoices in that day, if you want to have confidence when you look at Him, then avoid the false teaching and hold to the truth that was delivered once and for all through the apostles. Hold to what, this is John's point, you have heard from the beginning, not this new teaching. Let that truth abide, remain in you. Because if it does, then that great day of the second coming will not come as a shock or a condemnation to you. You will not be ashamed. That's John's point. So let me plead with us, sovereign grace. Continue on. Remain in Him by letting His words abide, get into you, remain in you, and live in you. Let me say it plainly. Read your Bible. Read what the apostles have left to us. Read them consistently and 
constantly where you find yourself memorizing large portions without trying to. No, the Word that was delivered from the beginning, it's really not very much. And let me say this. Judge me as a preaching, teaching pastor. Judge what I say by what's written in the book. When I'm wrong, help correct me. Our life is in the book. And so before I close, I just want to let that sit. I just judge. Is the feeling that you feel at the moment? Is that the feeling that one ought to feel from the words that John has written? And if it is, rejoice that you feel it. Rejoice that He's your life by the Spirit. But I do want to say a few other things as I close then. Okay. What do we do with the tension then that's created between loving others and truth? In other words, how shall we how how shall we live? Do mature Christians pursue love or do they pursue truth? Do ma- mature Christians do they pursue the unity within the church world? Do they pursue unity? Or do they pursue doctrine? The answer to that question is yes. You do. It's what you do. Pursuing, pursuing, going after, striving for both being a more loving human being to those around you and pursuing truth. That walk is one strong indication that growth is occurring in your life. Okay. Again, judge me by the Word. So I want you to turn to Ephesians for a minute. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting with verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes... Because we we're going to pick up in the middle of the, the thought, right? Because truth is at stake in the context here. And it's where he's gone. And the teaching, the, the true teaching, etc. And now he picks up. And, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, let's stop for a second. Paul's all for unity. But it's unity around the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That's how we develop and grow up as individual Christians and as local churches throughout the world. Now, now he goes on. Now watch. Why? Because here's the, here's the result. So that we may no longer be children, but mature. We will no longer be children. What do you mean by that? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Well, how do you prevent that? Because you read your Bible. You listen attentively to sermons and you see if what is said is not so in text and you grow and you grow and you grow and you plead with God to cause your heart to be moved by that truth. And now that's creating unity with others who are on that same path. This is Christianity. And then when you hear someone comes along, let me explain more about the Christ. There's the Christ Spirit who came upon the man Jesus. using ding, ding, ding. It ain't happening here. I know Colossians. I know Romans. I know Ephesians. I know 1 John. I mean, I, I bought the Bible and I use it. It's in me. It, it doesn't work. You're no longer tossed to and fro by all the craziness. Oh, here's a new way to do evangelical Christianity and get people to like Jesus. And you just go, I know the apostles. No. Okay, so John's answer, what is it? How do we grow in unity, in love, in caring for others without compromising the foundation of that unity, which is truth? See, that's the question. How can Christians, how can churches press for more clarity, not ambiguity? Ambiguity is easy. Just be really ambiguous and everyone would just love to be unified around ambiguity. How do you press for clarity of doctrine without becoming a miserable, quarrelsome person? The answer is in the next verse. Verse 15. Ephesians 4. Not tossed to and fro. Unity around knowledge. You're maturing. You're not children anymore. You're growing up. And so that you're not susceptible to all these false teachings. But rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So his answer is, love the truth. Contend for truth while you are loving persons. 
Let's help each other do that because that's not easy always. Pursue the well-being of others without ever caving on doctrinal, biblical truth. Oh, the church, we need to learn this much better in this world. We need to learn how to embrace literally with our arms and our life and our care and our talk persons who only know what it is to be attracted sexually to the same sex. To eat with them, to want to love them, and to never, because of our relationship, cave on the truth that saves their soul as it saves our soul. Believers, according to Paul, are those who are growing up. They're maturing in the grace of God. They're maturing in their knowledge of Christ. They're maturing in their knowledge of the words of the apostles, of the New Testament. Those are the ones who are actually, by maturity, becoming more and more useful to other believers and those who aren't believers. Because they're walking the tension and the tightrope. They're balancing their courageous firmness to a robust biblical faith, biblical truth, clarity of doctrine with tender caring. I know what it is to be so broken and sinful and confused, loving towards other persons. You don't need to be an obnoxious person. When you're accused of being arrogant, let it be only because you tenderly and lovingly say the truth, not because you are an arrogant, obnoxious person. Paul contended for the truth constantly, but he wasn't a contentious person. Paul contended for the truth because he loved. Paul had the well-being of his hearers orally or his, his readers. They would write to the church. He had their real, long-lasting well-being in mind. That's why he refused to speak or to write in order to be liked immediately. He said it this way, I do not please men because he really loved those men and those women. He was out for their happiness for eternity and not for a counterfeit that lasts for weeks or months or 50 years. And so, my exhortation for what we see here in John is that we are to pursue with a tender heart care for one another within the body of Christ which in the eyes of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that kind of love always includes right Doctrine. Biblical truth.
Love other people by not letting them drink that delicious cup of juice that's in front of them because you know it's been laced with poison by the liars. Love says, Stop! Don't drink that cup! Drink this cup. Drink the truth. And I know there are many in the church world today that literally say, if not only think, but those who really love me they won't judge my lifestyle of being a party animal, loving the world. And there are lots of churches that won't bug me about toying with my unmarried sexual nature in sexual activity. They kind of ignore it. Don't tell me not to drink that cup, you arrogant, judgmental Christian. There's just one message to those persons. Those people who you're comfortable around because they don't get into your face on issues like that. They don't love you. Paul felt this very thing. I mean, hopefully, we've got lots of Bible here, so you know. Second Corinthians. Okay. There was division. Paul was not happy because he loved the Corinthians. And they're buying into some professional ministers. And he's got some nasty things to say about their motivation and their teaching. Now, here's the rub though. Paul then says to the Corinthians, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yeah, and it happens a lot. I'm telling you the truth because I love you. Parents, we know this, don't we, as our parents? Who loves you more, kids? Who cares about your long-term more than your mother and your father, and yet they're the ones that seem to be in your face the most. Paul is a father to the church. He knew it. All kinds of reasons, you judgmental Paul. You're not that impressive, actually, Paul, when you even preach. These other guys are pretty impressive. Captivate my... This is what was going on. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so, believer, and I say it, especially to you youngins that are growing up in the church, you're going to be hitting the 16s, the 17s, the 20s, the 22s. You're going to be figuring out who am I and where am I and do I believe this gospel? Let me just tell you that if there are cultural Christians out there that let you stay 
and affirm you in your deceptive lifestyles and deceptive thinking and let you continually drink that cup of juice laced with poison. They don't love you as the Apostle Paul loves you or as John loves you. And so, sovereign grace with one another and with those who are in our lives outside of church life, let's be people who tenderly but clearly speak truth in love and thus grow up in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle John models for us in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. That is loving. And that's why, and I end with it, John therefore says to all of us in verses 24 and 25, let what you heard in the Gospel from the beginning, let it remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning does remain in you, then you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this, this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. Father, I have great, great confidence in Your mercy, Your grace to, to broken sinners like us. That You have been moving. You've been moving in the power and the presence of Your Spirit through Holy Scripture this morning. So Father, I... I beg that You in these closing minutes continue to work deeply in those who are Yours. That You would open up hearts to see and cause new birth to happen to those who are not yet Yours. May we be empowered and more resolute to allow Your Word to infiltrate our minds, our hearts, our lives, and our decisions to the glory of Jesus and to the hope where our heart is anchored in this wonderful promise of eternal life.